Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and the next of a special series of episodes I'm doing from the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. And joining me is a very special interviewee. It's the Director of the War Memorial, Dr. Brendan Nelson. Dr. Nelson, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. My great pleasure, mate. Thank you. It, I should start off by saying the last time I saw you was at the start of the month at Cowra for the 75th anniversary of the Cowra breakout. Didn't they do a wonderful job down there commemorating that event? Australians can be very proud of what the people of Cowra have done uh, from in fact, uh, the the day after the breakout to, to today, they've led the way in really helping us as a nation come to terms with the impact, uh, particularly of the war with Japan, had upon us and in leading reconciliation following the war, led, led by those uh, men, and they were men of the uh, local RSL. So to go there 75 years after the event and see what's been achieved and uh, and it's had a, a rippling impact right across Australia and of course into Japan itself so bloody proud of them actually. Yeah I agree I, I grew up in West Wylong just down the road from Cowra so I've been visiting that, that site for a long time and to me Cowra is a great example of how memory and and remembrance and commemoration uh, isn't just something that belongs in the past because it's such an evolving story in Cowra that continues from the Second World War onwards to today and well into the future. It's a, it's a really great example of the importance of commemoration, isn't it? Well, it is, and it also illustrates that this history and how we approach that history, how we memorialise it and remember it, actually has a lot more to do with the future than it does the past. And uh, so to, to see what has happened in Cowra and continues to do, do so is extraordinarily important. And, and, of course, here at the Australian War Memorial, we have uh, two... Australian George Cross recipients uh, commemorated uh, as we do the story of what happened in Cowra with the breakout and then what subsequently was done to build our relationships with the Japan that is vastly different from the one we were fighting during in the 1940s. I first met you several years ago when you were the uh, Australian ambassador for the European Union and uh, in based in Brussels. And as I understand, speaking to you then, you had the opportunity to visit Flanders quite often and particularly the town of Ypres. And listeners would know that Ypres is the, the, the focal point for commemoration of that, the, the, the ghastly First World War battles that occurred in that area. And the Men and Gate Memorial to the Missing and the Last Post that they play every day. How was it for you in this very important role as a representative of Australia? How was it for you visiting those battlefields, walking that ground, attending that last post service at the Men and Gate? 
I did many things on behalf of Australia as our ambassador to the European Union and NATO, and uh, I met heads of state, uh, presidents. I constantly engaged uh, those key institutions on behalf of our nation, but it was the time I spent in the cemeteries in Flanders, in Belgium, and at the Menin Gate that were the most meaningful to me of all the things I did. On my last night in Brussels as our ambassador, my wife and I went to the Menin Gate again, and we were just waiting for the ceremony to begin, and Benoit Motry, who's the president of the Last Post Association that delivers the daily Last Post ceremony, uh, he leaned over and he said, Ambassador, this is your 74th visit. And I said, Benoit, you've been counting them. And he said, well, we weren't at first, but we noticed you were coming more often than anyone we've ever seen. And I said, mate, if it was in Brussels instead of Ypres, I would have come every night. And, uh, and it was remarkably special. And I had some of the most uh, immensely rewarding experiences of my life at that Menin Gate. Uh, I remember one afternoon my EA came in and said, uh, I got a phone call from a school teacher from Gundawidi High School. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, um, they've got a group of kids from Gundawindi at the Menin Gate tonight and they want to know if you're going. And I said, I said, don't they realise it's an hour and a half drive? And I said, I've got a diplomatic dinner on tonight. And I said, look, please tell them apologies, but I'll, I, I won't be there. So about half an hour later I said, look, Gail, ring them back pull me out of this diplomatic thing, I'll go down to the Menin Gate. And, and there were six girls, and they were girls, from Gundawindi who actually had a relative on the Menin Gate of the 15 kids from the high school that were at the visit, and all six uh, recited the ode in unison. And, uh, and these kids, like all of the Australian kids that I encountered at the Menin Gate, they had an excited... A sense of reverence about being at the Menin Gate that meant so much to them. So, yeah, immensely rewarding. For those who who don't know, they at the Menin Gate they play the last post every night to commemorate the the more than fifty thousand soldiers on that memorial, including more than six thousand Australians. And I've I've ne- I've been to I haven't been to seventy four of them <laughs> as you have, but I, I've been to a number of. Uh, well, I've been to more now because I've been quite a few times since I left Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I haven't been anywhere nearly as often as you, but I've been to a number, many of the, the services. And the thing that strikes me is that they're different every night. They're, I don't think I've been to two in a row that are, that are, are similar, and they just do a wonderful job. Did that experience and that emotional experience, that incredibly emotional experience of standing there so many times at the Menin Gate. Did that change your outlook on on commemoration, on the way that we should remember our soldiers from the First World War? I don't know. I I suspect it probably did. You you don't realise what you're learning when you're learning it in life, no matter how young or not so young you might be. And the most significant ideas, thoughts that have most challenged and transformed my own thinking and outlook have often come in random moments of quiet revelation when I didn't really appreciate that I was learning anything. And I used to stand at the Menin Gate waiting for the ceremony or during the ceremony and I'd look across to the panels, I'd look up at the names and there's there's one enormous panel on your left uh, which has all Australian names which then go up around the inside and back around the internal walls. And I used to look up at them and wonder why don't they tell us something about one of those people. And I had uh, many experiences. In fact, my wife and I went to the Meningate one New Year's Eve. Uh, Rather than join the party scene with the diplomats, we thought, no, we'll go down the Meningate. And uh, there were only 20 people there. It was was minus eight degrees, a beautiful still night. 
And of those 28 were Western Australians. And just very powerful impact. And, and what's also rewarding is you see the impact of the Menning Gate and the ceremony being conducted and the wreath laying and on the people that are, are there. Uh, extremely emotional in so many ways. And it's, it's really about an ennobled memory. And also the Menning Gate, as does the Australian War Memorial, it, it prompts us to ask ourselves, do we continue to be people that are worthy of the sacrifices that have been made for us? You've been director of the Australian War Memorial now for seven years and you're moving on at the end of this year. When you began, did you feel the weight of that legacy? We're sitting here now looking out on the magnificent building first envisaged by Charles Bean. Did you feel the weight of that legacy of the importance and how did you make your mark when you first began, given the weight of history and the attention that would be on every decision you made in this institution? Well, I, I found out quite by accident that the job was available. And when I found out, the moment I found out, I applied for it and then went, came back to Australia for an interview. And uh, I couldn't believe my good fortune when I was advised that I was going to be appointed as the director. And I think in life you don't know what you don't know. And so when I came here, I didn't really know what to expect. I I knew that it was a position of immense responsibility, uh, that this is a place where we don't just tell the story of the Australian experience of war, but we reveal our character as a people, we reveal our soul. And certainly firmly imprinted on my mind were those uh, cemeteries that I'd gone through in Flanders and in northern France and in an earlier life, you know, to Changi and other uh, Bamana and other places throughout the world, and I was conscious of that. But it wasn't until I got here that I really appreciated the full responsibility of being the director. And one, one of what is interesting, before the public announcement was made, I confided in a small number of my friends. I said, I'm going to run the Australian War Memorial. One of my friends said to me, he said, what? You're going to run the Australian War Memorial? He said, you're wasting your life. He said, you've got far more important things to do for Australia than rearrange its history. And I, I, I said to him in part, it, it's actually got a lot more to do with the future than the past. And one of the things I'd learned through my period is certainly being Minister of Defence and then uh, through Opposition Leader and then uh, as our ambassador to NATO and the EU is... The world isn't just changing. I, I, th- I actually think humankind is moving to a new age. We are living through a period of immense transformation which is beyond our comprehension, a bit like people that lived in the late 15th century. And so you ask yourself, I ask myself, well, what's most important for us in this? And it is to never lose sight of who we are in what we believe as Australians What are those values that define and bind us as a people, truths by which we live? What are those things that are worth fighting to defend, politically, diplomatically, and sometimes militarily? And they are encapsulated by this Australian War Memorial, not the building, not the things that are displayed within it, as important as they are. It's the stories of the men and women and the values that are in and uh, have been in these men and women that wear our uniform. That That's the, the kind of gravity uh, of, of how I saw it. Given that period of change that you feel we're going through, how does an institution like the Australian War Memorial evolve and 
and still be relevant in the future, given that it's come so far from a, 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 a homage to the men who fought in the First World War and a collection of interesting relics. It's now become this focal point of remembrance in Australia. How does the War Memorial continue to evolve and to continue to stay relevant to a generation who are not touched by war in the same way that their ancestors were? Uh, we're in leadership uh, in a civilian context. What differentiates leadership from management is vision. And from the moment I arrived to this very day, I have constantly said to our staff and to wider audiences that we remain true to the vision of Charles Bean, uh, the official First World War correspondent who your listeners especially would know, landed with the Australians at Gallipoli, stayed with them at the front through the entire war, was wounded three times, refused evacuation from Gallipoli to Montbaran to the uh, armistice. He was there at the very front. And in 1948, um, having built the war memorial he had conceived in 1916 and written the official history or edited the 12 volumes, he articulated the vision for this place. Here is their spirit in the heart of the land they loved and here we guard the record which they themselves made. And as I've said to people, it's absolutely essential we remain true to Bean's vision, that we don't discard it but rather that that is the bedrock upon which we build the future of this institution. But we have to make the history live. It has to be engaging to and engaged by a new generation of Australians. It has to be an institution that evolves and continues to be a place where people find emotional resonance and meaning and a deeper understanding of what it means to be an Australian. And that means, in a practical sense, a whole range of things introducing technology, technology not for its own sake, but technology which assists us to draw out and tell the stories of the men and women that are behind the objects that we display. We need to be an institution that doesn't wait decades after wars have finished and the politics have washed out of them and every single soldier, sailor, airman or woman has come home before we tell the story. We have to tell the stories as soon as we practically can after those stories have been created by the service and sacrifice of Australian men and women. We have to, and, and I, when I, my very first week when I was told it would be at least a decade before we had an Afghanistan exhibition, I said, well, perhaps if the memorial had told the story of the Vietnam War broadly and deeply sooner, then some of those men might not have suffered quite as much as they have. This, part, this place, as I discovered early on, is a part of what I call the therapeutic milieu for men and women coming back to a country that has no idea what they've done. They can't explain it to their families, let alone the rest of Australia. We have a responsibility to, to tell those stories and to be a part of the healing process, helping young servicemen and women, veterans, their families, come to terms not just with what they've done but the impact that it's had upon them. Increasingly uh, and belatedly, we're drawing out the stories of Indigenous service to Australia, not to put them above any other service man or woman, but to ensure Australians understand that after everything they, they had endured through the 19th and early 20th century, they volunteered to serve, fight, suffer and die from the young country that had taken so much from them. So uh, to also increasingly recognise that the wars that we fight and the, that we do in the modern age 
include not just uniformed servicemen and women, but federal police officers, non-government organisations, aid workers, diplomats, a whole range of people, and to progressively introduce their storytelling into the Australian War Memorial. So those and, uh, and the other thing that's particularly important is Charles Bean articulated the vision for the memorial a year after our very first peacekeeping operation. We've now done 64 of them. 40,000 Australians have gone off in our name for peacekeeping operations. Their names, as a consequence of a policy change I drove in my first year, uh, those who were killed are now on the roll of honour. But uh, for so many of them, there's a sense of meaninglessness that what they did doesn't count. Nobody knows, nobody cares. As Kev Ryan said, coming out of Namibia. I mean, how many Australians knew we were even in Namibia, let alone where it is? Uh, it's, as, it's as if he said we never existed, we never were. Well, what's really important here is that Australians need to know that they were there, that what they did does count, and, it's, and their story is told and it's proudly told at the memorial, which is why the government, supported by the opposition, has invested $500 million over a decade to create the spaces here to tell these stories. That decision has not been without its critics. Uh, the criticism I've heard levelled is that a rather broad one that perhaps less money should go on military history and more money should go into other areas. And also, secondly, that, that that's not the role of the Australian War Memorial to help current service people deal with their, their service. How do you respond to that criticism? Firstly, many of those critics are not people that you will bump into in the galleries of the Australian War Memorial. They have a fixed false narrative. They're largely intellectuals, academics and retired public servants and fellow travellers who have a fixed false narrative that the Australian War Memorial in some way glorifies war and that it's full of uh, dusty artefacts and relics and that it's for the dead. This place is very much for the living and increasingly with growing spaces will be for the living. And it's not like any other cultural institution. Some of those people you're alluding to, for example, say, well, the War Memorial should be like any other cultural institution. If you haven't got enough space, take something out. So I say to them, well, there's a reason why the Australian War Memorial is where it is, at the opposite end of Anzac Parade from the Parliament. We have a man buried in the middle of the place, in the heart of it. Cloaking him are the names of 102,800 Australian men and women dead as a result of giving their lives to ensure that we are able to enjoy our political, economic and religious freedoms. We are not about to remove the uh, half of the First World War galleries, for example, uh, because the centenary is gone and we want to put in an Iraq exhibition. That is not this place at all. Under no circumstances does any serious person countenance that we should do such a thing. I also say, as many of your listeners would know, I have a medical background and I'm a patron of nine charities, one of them's Lifeline. Within two months of getting here, I realised the, the power of this place to heal. And what I discovered is immense emotional release of people here. We see it every day, not just up in the Roll of Honour, but in the galleries, people breaking down. There is currently not a single place that you can take a person having an emotional breakdown in the Australian War Memorial. Not a single room, not a single place. There will be in the new galleries, 
I put all of our staff through the accidental counselling program that Lifeline runs, which which equips you with the skill to be able to help a person that's being extraordinarily emotional in front of you. Uh, only a few weeks ago, I'm walking past the Afghanistan uh, Welcome to Taran Cot sign and the blast walls which we've created, which we invite veterans who've served in Afghanistan and naval ops in support to sign. I noticed a young man on one knee with his hand on the wall, uh, very emotional. It's in an access corridor, by the way, so lots of staff are walking past just to get to the back of the building because we've run out of space. And uh, so I stood back and I waited for him to um, compose himself and stand up and then I introduced myself. 25-year-old young bloke from Townsville, uh, 6-hour hour, and he was touching the name of a mate with whom he'd served who subsequently taken his life. We get that every day. We have young servicemen and women and veterans coming in here out of ours once the crowds are gone and the noise is gone One uh, who are damaged. And one of the psychiatrists, psychiatrists wrote to me and said, I don't know what you've done with my patient. I never thought I'd see him stand in front of that Afghanistan exhibition and sign your wall. Thank you. I mean, how do you put a value on this stuff? So those who say that this is... Um, uh, the, the memorial has no role in, in, in the therapeutic uh, journey of, of troubled veterans, simply has no idea what they're talking about. I mean, one of the photographs which your listeners can't see, but you can see in front of your map behind my desk, is a black and white photograph of nine men taken outside their camp at the Mena camp in Egypt in 1915. And uh, they are members of the 10th Battalion from South Australia. And uh, the man in the top left-hand corner uh, is a man called John Rutherford Gordon. So the 10th was in the second wave at the Gallipoli landing. Uh, John Rutherford Gordon uh, survived until October that year. Severe enteric fever, was repatriated back to Australia, was so ill. He then re-enlisted, uh, got into the, uh, the Royal Flying Corps, and then subsequently the Australian Flying Corps got a military cross as a rear gunner observer, retrained as a pilot, survived the war. His nephew told me that he brought John Rutherford Gordon to the Australian War Memorial in 1972, and he said when we walked up the front steps, he got to the foyer and he, and he, he suddenly broke down with immense emotion, and he said, all those young men gone, all gone, uh, their lives just gone, this is just so emotional for me to come in here. It has always been a place of, as I say, of emotional meaning and part of the healing, you know, for young servicemen and women. The other thing I'd say on the nuts and bolts of this, by the way, not a cent of this money is coming out of the Veterans Affairs budget. Over the same period of time, the country, our nation will spend $120 billion on veterans we will spend over $230 billion buying equipment for our defence personnel. Over the last 20 years, this country has created 100,000 veterans, by definition all pretty young, and their families. In that same period of time, we spent $22 billion sending them to wars, peacekeeping, humanitarian, disaster relief. We spent $400 billion equipping them. And now as a nation, we are going to spend $500 million over a decade to create the space to tell the stories of what they've done in our name so we can understand it and also so we can say to them, we're actually proud of what you did, as proud of what, as what you did as we are of those young men who landed on the beaches of Gallipoli, 
struggled at Isuava or Kokoda, held the line at Kapiong or fought at Long Tan or Coral Balmoral, that, that's what we're doing. Just finally, when it comes to your legacy at the Australian War Memorial, what are you most proud of, the, the initiatives you've created here, the changes you've made? In 20 years when people look back and they look at this institution, what are they going to remember Brendan Nelson for? Well, look, that's a, that's a judgment for others to make, but I, I'd like to think that the two things that, that I mean the most to me, and when I say I've achieved this, it's not me. It's an entire team of people, our staff, our volunteers, the support of our council members and so on. But the two things that, that really I, I'd like to, to think people would feel have been the right thing to do is significantly increase the commemorative role of the Australian War Memorial, the, the focus on uh, what I describe as the ennobled memory, uh, that we play a role in, in giving people, and the second thing is that these young servicemen and women today regard this place as being as much their spiritual home as earlier generations. And, you know, it, it hit me hardest, uh, most significantly, a hundred days out from the Invictus Games, and they were all here, these young men and women and with their physical and or psychological traumas, the families who love and support them, the sponsors, they wanted to be here at the Australian War Memorial. That means a great deal to me in terms of transformation. And, and I think back to that young soldier in October 2012 when my appointment here had been announced and I was in Afghanistan with the Secretary-General of NATO and this young soldier says, you know, why is it I can go to the War Memorial and take my son but I can't... I can show him what his great-grandfather did, what his grandfather did, but why can't I show him what I'm doing? Well, seven years later... No young servicemen or women is going to ask that question. And certainly seven or eight years from now, when these expanded galleries are done and they see a major expansion in the peacekeeping story, of course, Iraq, Afghanistan, East Timor, Solomon Islands, northern Iraq, Syria, and the story of what we do to actually stop war in the first place, uh, also with a space for quiet emotional reflection, uh, I think, I think uh, that will even speak more to what we've been able to do. Well, Dr. Nelson, thank you. Uh, I think I speak for everyone when I say thank you for the, the work you've done over the last seven years and, uh, and thank you for taking this time to sit down with us and, uh, and tell us some of those stories. It's been wonderful to have you on the program. My great pleasure, Matt, and thank you to all your listeners. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.